Good evening, I'm Lister Sinclair and welcome to Ideas on Being Born. It's like the baby's embedded in the mother's mood, like we are embedded in the climate, in the day's mood, in our weather mood. And so when the mother is very miserable and unhappy, the fetus is then overwhelmed. As soon as the placenta begins to function and fetus is uh, transfused through the placenta with the mother's hormones and chemical substances, it is not sad, but the mother is sad, and therefore the baby gets this depression infused. I think this is something that women have known themselves for a long time if they will become aware of it. And what we as women have to do is to help other women understand that they know more than they think they know. But you see, women have been indoctrinated for so long with thinking that the things they think they know, the things they imagine, are old wives' tales, and that they weigh as nothing beside medical fact. So really, we have to help women rediscover themselves, find their confidence, before they can acknowledge the things they already know. When we speak of the baby at birth as being new, we sometimes forget the fact that he or she is already nine months old. Folk wisdom allows that the baby is a distinct personality at birth, but perhaps the implications of this sometimes escape us. We may forget that during pregnancy, a real person makes an appearance, that this person listens to the sounds and voices of the world, that the fetus reacts and adapts to the changing environment, and above all, that the fetus responds to the emotional tone of the world that it shares with the mother, the family, and society. In recent years, a number of both clinical and experimental psychologists have begun to claim what many parents already believe, namely that the unborn child interacting with its environment is actually showing a form of consciousness. Last July in Toronto, many of those who have championed this view in the face of academic skepticism joined together in the first International Congress on Pre- and Perinatal Psychology. David Cayley attended the Congress for Ideas and interviewed most of the participants. From these interviews and from our recordings of the Congress proceedings, he's composed a three-part documentary series entitled Being Born, and tonight we present part two of that series, Life Before Birth. Beginnings are always critical. It is at the beginning that any process of development is most vulnerable to disruption, and the nearer to the beginning, the more profound and far-reaching will be the consequences. The events of pregnancy, therefore, have a unique importance for the unborn child. At no other time will the child's environment have as great an influence, for good or ill, as it does during these nine months. Over the last 40 years, it has been established beyond doubt that the unborn child responds to his mother's emotions. He literally feels what his mother feels. But since he cannot, in any cognitive sense, understand these feelings, they are for him simply a given, the basis on which he builds his very sense of how the world is. David Cheek is a San Francisco obstetrician who has pioneered the study of how prenatal impressions influence later development. Here, he relates a case from his own practice. I'm thinking of one that I just saw the other day, a woman that I've known for about 40 years. 
Her mother was unhappy about being pregnant because the mother's brother was dying of tuberculosis. Three days before labor started, the brother died. And this poor woman, who's now in her 50s, recalls in the present tense her mother beating on her abdomen and saying, I wish to God I didn't have this baby inside me because if I had not been pregnant, I could have cared for my brother. And her sister, Phoebe, she called her, was saying, don't be silly, this baby has a right to be itself. And your brother was dying, our brother was dying anyhow. Now, when her mother died just a few months ago, she put her arms around my patient, Margaret, and she said, you know, I've loved you all your life, and I love you now. Bye-bye, baby. And she waved her hand to her daughter and just died. And the daughter said, what a tremendous relief this was because it seemed to resolve something that I've vaguely known about all my life, that I, I wasn't wanted, that I was a nuisance, and I've been trying like hell to be worthy of being a person. And now I don't have to try anymore. In David Cheek's story, a single incident translates into a lifelong feeling of unworthiness. The incident, however, may simply be the decisive moment in a continuing process. Precisely how the baby apprehends maternal rejection is not clear. Certainly there is a physical channel of communication via the placenta through which the baby is exposed to the biochemical forms of his mother's emotions. Whether there is another psychic channel of communication is a more difficult question. There is certainly evidence, like David Cheek's story, to suggest it, but it is hard to see how it could be proved. The least we can say is that the baby is critically dependent on the physical life support system which centers on the placenta. If this malfunctions in any way, the baby is exposed to the painful experience of oxygen deprivation. At its most extreme, fetal oxygen deprivation can result in what Dr. William Hull, a clinical psychologist from California, calls prenatal suffocation syndrome. The syndrome is formed when the baby actually blacks out from lack of oxygen. Hull believes that up to 20% of the population may have experienced this. He recognizes a variety of possible physical causes, ranging all the way from heavy smoking to a kinked umbilical cord. But he believes that the primary cause is the kind of powerful maternal emotion which might result from shock or grief. As far as my observation has been concerned, the emotionality of the mother-to-be is the prime factor. It is her own emotionality that sets up the fight-and-flight syndrome, fight-or-flight syndrome, within the mother herself, redistributing her own blood supply to the large muscles where, of course, she really doesn't need it. We don't respond now to fear and anger as we did thousands of years ago, but our physiology is the same. So this redistribution is taken care of at the expense of the viscera where the uterus is located, and so when the mother gets upset about something, it tends to cause a reduction of blood supply to the uterus, which means a reduction of oxygen supply to the uterus. Now, the uterus will take its oxygen first, the part that it needs to survive, 
and the fetus gets what's left over, which usually isn't enough. How is this experienced by the fetus? It's experienced by the fetus in about the same way it would be experienced by you or me. <laughs> uh, it experiences seven precise feelings in a particular order. Panic, helplessness, hopelessness, exhaustion, depression, rage, and breathlessness. And this becomes a syndrome for this particular problem, which once the individual experiences this to the point of unconsciousness, and unconsciousness is the key because it's equivalent to dying. So then the fetus has this pattern of emotionality which will stay with it throughout the life until or unless it can be resolved by therapy. The fetus relates to unconsciousness as an escape from these feelings and it has the ability to psychologically induce this coma feeling. In other words, the fetus or the person later on in life faced with a problem, reaching a point of maximum nervousness, all they can stand. They're so uptight they can hardly stand themselves. If they can't get out of it any other way, then they sort of withdraw from reality. They sort of turn their mind off. They're not going to be anything, they're going to do anything, they're not going to feel anything, they just want out of it. It's like going to bed and pulling the covers over your head and pretending like the world isn't there for a while. And this provides a relief. What William Hull calls prenatal suffocation syndrome is the result of severe physical or emotional trauma. Many of the events or feelings that might set it up are exceptional. Other effects are more subtle. For example, the effect of a mother's basic attitude towards the pregnancy. In The Secret Life of the Unborn Child, Tom Verney cites a number of studies which have all concluded that this attitude is the single most important influence on how the birth and pregnancy go and how the baby turns out. At the Congress itself, obstetrician David Cheek stated that a 15-year check of his records had revealed that most complications of pregnancy and labor occurred in cases where the mother hadn't wanted to be pregnant to begin with. And Barbara Finn Dyson, a psychotherapist from Palo Alto, California, added the idea that the baby herself knows whether she is wanted. I am now absolutely convinced that a child very early in utero knows if they're rejected or accepted. And I don't mean a time where the mother feels, oh, gee, I wish I weren't pregnant or maybe this isn't quite the right time, but I mean basic, deep, deep feelings of rejection, of I don't want this baby, I am not pregnant, denial of the pregnancy is denial of the child. And the clients that I get very often go back to that and they have, at that point, even though we can't understand how it happens, the child gets the message of fear gets the message of not being wanted, of rejection. And it's so deeply buried in the unconscious that they live it out their entire life, but they aren't aware of where that decision came from. It's like they'll spend their lives chronically being nervous or feeling unworthy, feeling like some people feel like they don't even belong on the earth. At the Congress, Barbara Fendyson presented a remarkable videotape showing regressions she had done with four of her clients. The material had such emotional power that I was sobbing much of the time as I watched, while several other people in the room 
seem to be undergoing spontaneous regressions themselves. Listen for a moment yourself. This is Jonathan, re-experiencing the frustration and rage he first felt in the course of a 40-hour labor. Earlier in the session, he had become aware of what he thought was his mother's motivation for getting pregnant in the first place, which was to get away from home. Then he had become aware of his mother's fantasy about the girl baby she wanted to have, and felt that he was actually present as she watched some little girls at play. This was his response. I'm not a girl, I'm a boy. You just have to put up with that. I'm a boy, and that's your bad luck. I'm a boy. That's what I am. That's just as good as being a girl. I don't care if you don't like it. I'm a boy, and I like it. I'm scared she's not going to like me. She's not going to want me. It's going to be wrong for her. She doesn't know yet, but I know. She's not going to want me. She's not going to want me. Later in the session, he came forward to the delivery and experienced the emotions he had felt while stuck in the birth canal. I can't get out. I can't get out. I can't get out. I can't get out. Therefore, I can't get out. Therefore, what happened right there? What's happening right now? Stopped. Uh-huh. Just be with that stop and how'd that make you feel? Oh, let me out. Let me out. Let me out. I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. I can't move! It's interesting to note, in the light of William Hull's ideas about oxygen deprivation, that Jonathan did actually black out in the course of this regression. Eventually, it was his pain that brought him back from this coma, thus forging a deep and destructive link between pain and survival in his unconscious mind. Because he was finally able to get himself out, pain came to mean survival. And so, up to the time of his therapy, he had always managed to make his life hard for himself. The idea that a baby, before or during birth, is able to form a conclusion of this sort is basic to many of the emerging theories of prenatal psychology. Barbara Finn Dyson has experienced the significance of such conclusions not just in the lives of her clients, but in her own life as well. I went into therapy about, uh, about 1970, and one of the earliest things I got into was terror. Just terror, panic and terror, and I would lie on the mat and tremble with no idea at all of what I was afraid of. In fact, I remember saying to my therapist once, I, I don't know what I could possibly be afraid of. No one has ever laid a hand on me. I had a kind of idyllic childhood in a lot of ways. So here I am trembling, just trembling. And it got worse and worse and worse and worse. And one day I started screaming in terror the words, don't puncture me. Now where that came from, I didn't have the vaguest idea. And I got into this, and it would just be over and over and over hysterically. I'd be screaming, don't puncture me, and I'd curl up. 
and try to scrunch myself underneath furniture in the room, or I was totally out of control. And I was just trying to get away from something. And that went on for quite a while, and all of a sudden, one day in the middle of that, I sat bolt upright, turned around, looked at my therapist and said, I couldn't possibly be afraid of my mother, she loves babies. Laid back down again and went right back into it. And eventually what I was connected up with is that she was literally trying to puncture the placenta and abort me. And she tried it twice. And I made a bargain with her at that time, which was, don't do it to me again. And I promise you, I'll always make you happy. So my entire life was spent in making my mother happy. My birth was even easy. I didn't want to cause her any pain. I had a very simple, quick, easy birth. I was the ideal Miss Sunshine girl. My mother used to say to me, you're the joy of my life. I don't know what I'd do without you. I devoted myself totally to just her, whatever would make her happy. I lived for her. And people would say to me, might say to me, well, how do you know that that really happened? And I have some facts to verify it like she had two children, she had an abortion, she had me, and she had another abortion. But beyond that, it doesn't matter whether it really happened to me or not. It's a metaphor, perhaps. But what I have gained from it is my life. It's like I don't have to live just to please you and anyone else. I don't have to deny my own wants and needs. I can say no if I need to. I don't have to be Miss Mary Sunshine all the time if I'm feeling sad. And so even if it is just a metaphor, what I've gained from it is so valuable that I don't care whether it really happened or not. And now, of course, I love my mother and I can forgive her totally. And she was doing the best she knew how to do and she just didn't want any more children at that time. I don't bear her any ill will at all. I had anger toward her and resentment and things like that, but I don't feel that anymore. It actually enabled me to begin to see all the good things she did do for me. And I find that true with a lot of patients, is there's a stumbling block in them really being able to receive the good that was given and is still given. And sometimes when we go back and clear up that basic block, it opens up tremendous communication between parents and children, between couples, between me and my own children. And you can begin to see that there's so much we can receive and give. Barbara Finn Dyson speaks of a bargain she struck with her mother during the first trimester of pregnancy. This is certainly hard to understand, but it makes more sense, I think, if we eliminate a powerful source of confusion, which is that we are using words to describe what did not happen in words at all. Similarly, we are using verbal thought to try and understand preverbal thought. So even though we have no choice, if we wish to speak about this at all, it is still inherently misleading to speak of the baby making decisions or drawing conclusions or whatever. Secondly, I think we need to understand, as Wilhelm Reich once said, that our emotions represent the life force itself in flow in our bodies. Feelings are our first language, and babies are very sophisticated in this language long before they learn to speak. So it is possible that emotionally powerful experiences will impress the baby long before he is able to form concepts. David Cheek speaks of these powerful prenatal impressions as imprints, a term he has taken over from the animal studies of Conrad Lorenz. 
and he believes that since the baby is reacting to feelings that he cannot possibly interpret, these impressions may frequently, in a conceptual sense, be wrong. A mother who's silent is not silent because she's rejecting her baby, but the silence is interpreted by the baby as a, they used to talk and now there's no sound. It must be that they're not wanted. They get this feeling and they'll carry this over as what we call an imprinting, where one impression takes precedence over later ones. So when the mother holds the baby, nurses it, and says, I love you later, the child will, will feel you didn't greet me in the first place, and may reject the mother's breast. In fact, Dr. Verney has pointed out one case where a baby rejected the mother who didn't want to be pregnant in the first place, rejected her breast, but did accept the breast of a, of a substitute mother, so that it, it wasn't something that was wrong with the mother's breast, it was just that the baby had imprinted on the impression that the mother didn't love it. And by the time she delivered the baby, she had changed her mind and wanted the baby. So that this is an area of wanting to know as much as we can about prenatal impressions, right or wrong, and what we can do to change them. And with hypnosis, it is possible to change a person's original imprinting, explain it in terms of their later knowledge and understandings, and correct behavior problems. Barbara Finn Dyson. The child, even later, doesn't understand why they're just not basically lovable. And also the child is very subjective, doesn't understand that the mother might not even be hating the baby might be hating the situation, might be hating her husband, might be hating just being pregnant and being heavy and tired and that sort of thing. So do you understand the child takes on and personalizes a lot of the things that are going on in the mother's experience and sometimes, tragically, it's not even the baby that is the target. There are a variety of forms of this idea that a baby translates her experience into powerful unconscious impressions which then shape her later existence as a sort of life script. The strongest form of this hypothesis is David Cheek's concept of imprinting. A related concept is found in the practice of rebirthing, an extended breathing process which helps some people to reconnect with their birth memories. The rebirthers say that at birth a powerful unconscious impression is formed. This may have been set up in prenatal life, and its influence will depend on whether it is reinforced during childhood, but it becomes manifest at the moment of birth. Bob Mandel is a rebirther who does something called the loving relationships training, in which the link between birth memory and behavior in relationships is explored. In his address to the Congress, he spoke of a number of characteristic attitudes towards intimate relationships which are set up at birth. Another aspect of birth which I found uh, very powerful in most relationships is something I call the infant guilt syndrome. And what that involves is the experience of coming through the birth canal and the mother's response to that. So I know uh, for me, when I was coming through the birth canal, my mother was very terrified. And uh, there was some anesthesia used, but her fear went right through my body and scared me. 
And what happened was that a general conclusion began to form in my subconscious mind about my aliveness, my coming into life, my entry into the world, causing my mother pain. And here was my mother, whom I loved and who had nourished me for nine months, and it seemed like my life was hurting her. And I think a lot of people have that thought in life that when they express themselves, they're going to hurt someone. When they tell the truth, they're going to hurt someone. Uh, if they share the, if their real feelings, it's going to hurt someone. And uh, for me, this originated in birth, and I've experienced a lot of other people who've traced their guilt back to the thought that their aliveness hurt their mother. Now, the way this can affect a one-to-one -one relationship is pretty powerfully because what happens in a relationship where that same kind of intimacy is evoked that was at birth is the feeling comes up that I have to hold myself back to be with someone. So what people tend to do is suppress themselves to protect the people they love. Later on in his talk, Bob Mandel reflected further on his own birth and the powerful associations it produced for him. The way it seemed to work at my birth was that the guilt of hurting my mother while coming through the womb seemed immediately followed by the pain the obstetrician inflicted on me. There I was coming through and feeling my mother's fear and pain, and then suddenly I was out and this guy was grabbing me and cutting my cord and flipping me upside down. So somewhere in my mind there was guilt, pleasure, guilt, punishment. It's almost like the story of the Garden of Eden is recapitulated at every birth. Come right out of paradise into guilt and into punishment. And I think that cycle is something we don't need to continue to create in our relationships. In the course of rebirthing or other types of regression, people recover memories of events which seem to have set the very direction of their lives. In this context, I think it is important to pick up a point which Barbara Finn Dyson made earlier in relation to her memory of her mother trying to abort her. She said that for her, the question of whether the memory was real was ultimately irrelevant. It was enough that the memory summarized, perhaps symbolized, an unconscious decision which had long dominated her behavior. What mattered was its usefulness, not its factual accuracy. Roger Moss is a British therapist who does a similar type of work as Barbara Findyson. He agrees that primal therapies are justified by their usefulness, and he illustrates with an example from his own experience. When I was experiencing my own birth for the first time, or rather the life in the womb that preceded the birth, I had quite a long spell in which I was quite sure that the flow of the blood in the umbilical cord from my tummy, the significant flow was outwards from me towards my mother. Now, of course, the blood actually flows in both directions, but I was just being conscious and aware of the blood that was going from me to my mother. And as I thought about this, I began to realize that this summed up in a very neat way the whole dynamic of my life. It was as if my mother had wanted me to come into the world for her sake, to minister to her, so it seemed to me, and that I had to give, give, give in that outward direction. And uh, so I, 
realised in the end why I became a psychiatrist that I, I had to give out. Now, uh, nowadays, that's a very useful insight because when I'm working with people, if I suddenly feel that gathering feeling in my stomach again, I say to myself, I'm doing too much, I'm giving them too much, just hold back and uh, let them do it for themselves. And I switch off and the pain immediately goes. <laughs> So that's uh, one way in which, as an example of the, the practical use, that um, these explorations actually are to a person. Roger Moss believes that many prenatal memories are real. But like Barbara Findyson, he also feels that they have a value which goes beyond their mere factual accuracy. The cynical part of myself just says, well, this may be just a very useful symbol. But it's, of course, a symbolization that everybody understands because we've all been through birth and most people have had some education about birth processes. So it's a very easily available symbol. And it does seem, and we've heard a lot uh, this weekend, about the way in which these symbols seem to be very widespread through our culture, through our history, through our literature, through so many things, that once you ask people to focus on it, they tune into things which are very significant and powerful for them. So even if one is only doing symbolic work, it focuses so much of life in a very simple sort of way. Life is now boiled down to me in a little capsule with one portal of entry of, of stimulation or hormones from my mother, and I can view life in terms of being in that little capsule, in that little room, that little place, and the next part of the story is that I'm building up to getting out of it. I'm going through an exit which may be blocked temporarily and which I may rebel against, and then uh, I eventually struggle through and get out. And uh, so much of the process of life, of dying or nearly dying, of almost being buried for a bit and then being reborn, seems to be caught up in that, that once people get in tune with that, they can use it, and what we believe and what we seem to be seeing is that uh, people don't do this in any standard way whatsoever. They do it in the way that then becomes true for them. This is according to their history. It's, it's tied up, it's tuned in on something that uh, is true for them. Barbara Findyson. I feel like the original person is more an experience of the self and that the ego is something that develops almost after in order to be what the world and the parents expect us to be. In other words, the original being is just experiencing. It doesn't start questioning why am I alive or who am I or uh, all of those heavy weighty questions. It is simply the experience of being not caught up with fears of the past and not worrying about the future. And when the fear comes in from the mother, or the fear of survival that happens to the baby, or the birth trauma, or whatever happens, whenever it happens. The fear and the pain that comes in is so tremendous that from then on, once we forget, or the veil is dropped, we spend the rest of our lives coming from survival, which is why so many people feel like they're really not in touch with themselves, or they're really lost or empty inside, or there's a void they're afraid of, and something is missing in their lives. I think what's missing is them, <laughs> because they've developed, in Jung's terms, they've developed a persona. They've developed, I've decided what kind of a good little girl my mother wants me to be, or a tough kid my daddy wants me to be, and the society wants me to be something else. And then I think because we've used those facades to cover up a lot of the pain, 
and the fear. Well, we don't want to look inside because we have a lurking fear that what's in there is perhaps pretty bad, which is true, but it's not what's basic within us. The pain only covers who we really are. So it's like, it's a three-level thing I see. It's like originally there's this being who is consciousness. And then when the fears of the world come in, wherever they come in, and the hostilities and the anger that result in the child, then we have to cover up that pain because we don't know what to do with it. It's overwhelming. We're terrified. In utero, we're trapped, totally trapped. All we've got is our mind. We can't get out. Some babies, I think, probably do get out. They die. And then later, of course, when we're little, we're totally helpless and dependent, too, on these figures, and they may not want a baby who's in pain, or they may not want a frightened baby or an angry baby. And then I think sometimes people are afraid to go within because their survival mechanism has gotten them survival. There's no doubt about it. They have survived. But my feeling is why I feel so optimistic about all this is when I can finally manage to get a person to, to go through their defenses and down into whatever that fear or that whatever threatened their survival. On the other side of that, we're so much more than what we ever imagined we were. We can live without fear because most of what we're afraid of isn't even here anymore. We're carrying it around from the past. It doesn't have to be that way. The emergent science of prenatal psychology has produced a remarkable portrait of the relationship between mother and child before birth. Study after study has disclosed the delicate interplay of maternal and fetal emotions and shown the extraordinary extent of the unborn baby's interaction with his mother and his world. This is a considerable achievement and a positive one, but it is not without a certain irony. For what science discovers is sometimes what science covered up in the first place. And so it needs noting that what is now coming to light may long have been known to those midwives and mothers and fathers who never bought into the medical model of pregnancy and birth to begin with. Sheila Kitzinger is a British anthropologist, mother, and childbirth educator who has become a midwife to the whole movement for more natural and spontaneous births. Here she speaks of what women are able to know of their own pregnancies. I think one of the important things is that a woman who is not retreating from her pregnancy, trying to blot it out, becomes aware of fetal movements. She notices that her baby has sleeping and waking times. And that's very important, that there are times when her baby is in a quiet, alert state, and times when her baby is very active and jumping around all over the place and times when the baby is just really sleepy. And very often after the baby is born, 
exactly the same rhythm is recreated so that a woman, for example, who's found out that her baby is always active in the evening, say from 8 to 11 o'clock at night, which is a very common pattern, finds that her baby after birth is active just at that time too, and realizes that she already knew her baby was in touch with her baby's rhythms. Now, lots of women are unwilling to accept that because they haven't been helped to acknowledge that this is the case. I think, too, that women learn that their babies respond to their voices, to their own activities, to types of movements, that they can play with their babies. Now, I think it would be awful if we instituted special games which mothers have to play with their babies in utero. But in fact, I've just been making some films for the BBC on getting ready for pregnancy and on pregnancy and childbirth. And one of our films has been on a woman's awareness of her changing body and of the baby inside during pregnancy. And we deliberately didn't want women in the film who were vocal, educated. And so we set ourselves the big task of having women who hadn't really usually put such things into words, for whom it was rather odd. And we filmed at a London hospital where we had two women from the Caribbean, both of whom were unmarried. And the interview was going, I thought, rather stickily at first. I thought, how am I going to get them to express themselves? And then suddenly, one of the young West Indian girls grinned from ear to ear. And she said, I play with my baby. So I said, do you? And she said, yes, we have games. I push with one finger and the baby pushes back. And she was doing it and she knew it and nobody had to tell her. And that was absolutely marvelous, I think. So I would like to see women doing a lot more sharing with each other. I don't want doctors and psychoanalysts and others to come in and tell them what to do. I, I hate all these shoulds, but I do want to see women doing more sharing. And I think groups during pregnancy in which they're sharing of ideas and feelings and hopes and fears, I think that's a marvellous idea. Like Sheila Kitzinger, Colleen Staten has been interested in what parents already know about their unborn children. Staten is an associate professor of nursing at the University of Calgary and a doctoral student at the University of California. Her studies have led her to the conclusion that many parents are remarkably aware of their baby's habits and temperament before birth. But she also believes that parents cannot be pushed to interact with their babies before they are ready to do so. There are levels of awareness of the fetus that seem to develop over time in pregnancy and that some parents, but not all, achieve a sense of their baby as an interactive person and in fact interact with it. And there have been several other studies now that show that really only about 30% of parents really become interactive with their fetus prior to delivery. We don't know enough yet to really know whether we should be doing anything to try and promote increased interaction with the fetus prenatally or whether that indeed pushes people too hard toward a very important kind of thing like falling in love before they're ready. And other parents say that they really can't feel any strong feeling of bond to their baby until it's responding back and they don't perceive that response to be till four months when the baby laughs and smiles and coos. And other people tell me it six months gestation, that they have a very responsive baby. So I think we need to look at the sort of range of human behavior and the range of individual preferences and be much more sensitive to that range. Given this range of ways in which parents will actually come to terms with their new baby, can there be any one right way of preparing for parenthood? 
The resounding answer of the Congress on this point, it seemed to me, was no. Birth is too powerful, too individual, and too intimate a matter to be somehow planned in advance. But I did sense a common approach to preparation for birth and parenthood, which I would paraphrase roughly like this. Birth is a gift, and therefore something which we can only receive. Precise plans and expectations are an attempt to coerce nature and can only result in guilt or blame when the universe frustrates our designs. So preparation consists in aligning ourselves with all the forces that are making for spontaneous, natural birth, in opening ourselves in order that we will be able to receive what is given. One of the suggested ways of achieving this alignment is through visualizations or relaxations. These involve a process of guided imagination which brings the parents in tune with the process of birth. Sylvia Klein-Olken. The most important uh, relaxation I think that I do is uh, birth from the baby's point of view. We go through a birth experience with the mothers and the fathers in most cases where they become their babies and they go down the birth canal and they're squeezed and pressed but mother's there and dad's there talking to them the whole time and then they imagine the baby outside how it's going to feel and how they're going to feel and at that point then they just again communicate with the baby and tell the baby that they're going to be there all during the birth and that they're going to do the best that they can to make the birth easy for the baby. And then they talk to the babies during birth. Yeah, I've coached a number of my students, or I've attended a number of births of my students, and everybody in the room talks to the baby all during the birthing process. The babies come out not smiling, but very peaceful. You know, very rare do they come out really crying and screaming. Sylvia Klein-Olken calls her preparation for birth inner bonding and she believes that contact with the baby before birth makes for a more gradual and more natural transition to parenthood. I think it's easier to become a mother or a father because it's not a role that starts quickly the day the baby's born. You've prepared for it. You've acculturated yourself to the fact that you're going to become a parent, and you're talking to the parent as a mother. You know, you're a mother in the third month, and you're a mother in the fourth month. Even though everybody else calls you a mother-to-be, you really are a mother. You're mothering the baby inside. So many of my students say, the baby didn't seem like a stranger. I knew that baby. I didn't know what the baby looked like, but I knew that baby. And they seem to have a much easier time adjusting to uh, taking care of the baby, holding the baby you know, really mothering the baby. Doesn't guarantee no colic I mean, <laughs> at all, but uh, it does make life much easier. I see a, a high percentage of my students, I have a postpartum program too, and then I get to know the babies on the outside. When I meet them the first time on the outside, they turn around and they look at me, eye to eye contact, and it's, okay, now I see the body that went with that voice. They know my voice. They know that when I work with their mother and with their fathers, oftentimes the fathers come to all the classes, that they get calm and that the environment that they're living in is nicer. The vibes are better. I have a lot of friends, <laughs> <laughs> little ones. <laughs> Another approach to preparing for parenthood was offered by Pamela Borg, a psychotherapist and childbirth educator from Cambridge, Massachusetts. She calls it prenatal conscious parenting and believes that it should start not with pregnancy, but with conception itself. Ideally, parents might want to consider 
communicating to the spirit of the child by actually talking to it as if it were a human being and sending it love and letting it know that it's, it will be loved, that it will be safer to come into the world, that they're there to give it what it needs, that they're ready to be parents, and that that consciousness should be continually communicated to the being from before conception throughout conception. Basically what we're talking about here is love, the importance of love. If a being is conceived consciously and loved and nurtured in the womb, it's more likely to be a healthy, creative, loving being. If it comes into the world feeling unloved and has to struggle all its life to express its true self, it will spend most of its life trying to heal that trauma rather than having that energy free to self-actualize. That's the basic premise. And it's very ancient wisdom. It's common sense in one sense. But most of us, because we're so traumatized from our own past and have, don't have a strong sense of self or love of self, how can we be there for our children if we don't love ourselves? So I encourage couples to really work on themselves first, to learn to love themselves, to learn to love one another before they conceive that this is the real primary step in preparing for conception. Make sure you're clear with your own past trauma, or at least get to a strong sense of self where you're not working through your unfinished business, as they call it in the trade, your unmet childhood needs and feelings. You're not projecting that into the life of your unborn child or your child, because then you won't be there to truly support and love and nourish your child for who they are and for, the, for their true creative self. A point made here by Pamela Borg, that to become parents we must face our own fears and uncertainties, was also picked up in a talk by Elizabeth Noble. Noble is a physiotherapist and childbirth educator with several books to her credit on preparation for childbirth. In her presentation to the Congress, she noted that many of the ways in which we prepare for birth reflect our fear of the unknown. We're all afraid of the unknowns of birth, therefore we want to structure it as perfectly and as watertight as possible, and that's why we've had so many methods about how to do this. But I feel if we're going to be entirely truthful, we have to agree that birth is a journey into the unknown, and every couple has to kind of wing it with courage and insight. But I do feel that we have to be very careful in not conveying that there is a right way to give birth. And while there's improvements all the time, I feel that birth is a very unique experience and that any labels, um, even the, the so-called good labels like positive, assertive, normal birth, are still conveying to couples that there is a way to give birth, that experts have set out in books, and that there's this outside standard that they have to meet, which gives them double trouble. I mean, you know, they've got their own birth experience and all they're bringing to it, plus this um, formula which has been set by people who obviously know more than they do. Noble was one of many people at the Congress who asserted that the experience of giving birth can reawaken the birth memories of those who are present. And she stressed that the pain of childbirth is not just the physical pain of stretching, but also the psychological pain of facing all that may be released in the process. Pain of birth, I believe, is the pain of opening up. And this involves the heart and the mind as well as the body. The pain of letting go is the pain of letting go of control and allowing the primal feelings to surface, a feeling that you take off the lid and let all this energy from birth come up, then it's going to bring up all the garbage, all the, all the other problems of um, our own birth. Pain also, I feel, is the only way in our society women can ask for help and support. It's just like they come to me with a neck ache because I'm a physical therapist and they don't want to go to a psychotherapist. 
So therefore, it's okay to call for pain in birth, but not to say, I'm afraid, oh my God, I wish my mother was here, although I usually hate her, um, or, you know, I need to get in touch with female energy, or, you know, whatever, just, they don't, can't say it like that. And I think if we misinterpret this call for support and we rush in with rescue measures like drugs, then, of course, what's happened is what happens all the time. Experts have moved in and taken away the power from the birth process. Any of us who work with childbearing women must be so careful not to set ourselves up as experts because however much we know about births in general, we know nothing about a particular birth and we must let it unfold with its own uniqueness and support couples to seek their own style of birth. For the uniqueness of each new birth to be expressed, we must let go of the cycle of guilt and expectation which ties us to past births and forces us to relive them. For Barbara Findyson, this means letting go of blame. You have to be really careful, I think, that we don't lay the burden of guilt on mothers looking back. We really need to forgive ourselves. And we've made mistakes parenting, but we've done the best we could. And that's why I feel it's so important that we get the information out to parents, because most parents I've dealt with, most parents really want to do the best for their children, but they've been mistaught. And because they were programmed that way, they've just taken a lot of things that are incorrect. But I think that if mothers realize there's somebody listening inside there, there's a real sentient being they're carrying around for nine months, they would begin to be more conscious of the way they talk to the baby. It wouldn't just be an it. They perhaps would correct ahead of time some of their strong feelings like it had to be a certain sex. And they instead would wish for a healthy baby and begin to talk in welcoming terms, even to the point of explaining, I'm upset right now, but I'm really upset because, you know, the yard work didn't get done or whatever it is, and your daddy didn't do such and such. I'm really not upset about you. To learn to communicate with a baby before birth also requires confidence in oneself as a parent. And this may be hard to acquire in a society where parents are isolated and without cultural support. Mary Sharp is a Toronto midwife, whom you'll be hearing more from in next week's program, when the subject will be birth itself. She concludes tonight's program with some reflections on her own growth as a mother. Mothers, in our culture anyway, have to almost learn how to mother because they're so isolated from other women as mothers. It lacks visibility in our culture, mothering. I think that they haven't also had the opportunity of being with other mothers who experience themselves as mothers as they're, as they're pregnant. So just as for me, mothering my second child was a lot easier at the very, very beginning. When Jenny was very small, I didn't talk to her when she was two weeks old. I, I remember changing her. And a friend of mine who was about 60 came over to visit, and Jenny was crying. And my friend Barbara said, talk to her, Mary. And I said, well, what, what, what am I going to say? She doesn't talk back. <laughs> and she said, well, you don't have to say anything. Just goo-goo-ga-ga. Hello, Jenny. And I started to try it. And this dear friend of mine taught me how to mother Jenny in a certain way. And then I took that experience, of course, and my, my two years of mothering Jenny I brought that to my, my next baby, my mothering of Gabrielle, and immediately, as soon as she was born, I was talking to her. And then I think of Martha being born this time. As soon as she was born, we knew her name would be Martha, if she was a she. And it's really interesting that people have said at that conference that women really know what sex their babies were. And I, I felt this time, that, and through dreams, that she would be a girl.
and as soon as she was born, I was able to say, oh, Martha, Martha, you know, my Martha, and, and hold her and touch her. And so as I've grown in my mothering with all my children during their extra uterine life, I feel that I've begun to grow closer to them in utero. Ideas Tonight, Being Born, prepared and presented by David Cayley. Producer, Bernie Lucht. Technical Operations, Lorne Tulk. If you'd like a reading list for these programs, it's free. Just write to us at Ideas, Post Office Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. And a transcript of this series will also be available, but it costs five bucks. You can order one by writing to Being Born, CBC Transcripts, Post Office Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Please enclose a check or money order for $5 payable to CBC Transcripts. Don't send cash in the mail and be prepared to wait five or six weeks. Well, that's ideas for this week. The executive producer is Robert Prowse. I'm Lister Sinclair. And I'll be back on Sunday night with the third program in our series on the Enchanted Boundary. Join me then. Good night. Are